I am not one of those people who's all bitter about being connected to some kind of legalizing Christianity, legalism, okay? I'm not, I'm not bitter about it. Uh, in fact, I would go on to say not everything even in those places was legalism, all right? And even the legalism that existed was legalism to various degrees. I would actually also want to make clear, as I give a few illustrations in just a moment, that I'm very grateful for so much of what I learned when I was kind of in that uh, stream of Christianity. For one, I made some great friends. For another, I learned how to study the Bible, original languages and church history and all of that. For another, I had godly men pour into me. I had some great pastors. And I do think we ought to care a whole lot about holiness. Can I say that again? A whole lot about holiness. So I am not trying to speak pejoratively of my time in that movement. That said, there were some legalistic teachings and practices that I don't think were that healthy or helpful. For example, instead of people being taught the wisdom of what you watch media-wise, in some of these places there was this unilateral um, mandate that you can never go to a movie theater. I don't know if anyone's ever been in a context like that. Um, and if you replied, well, not every movie is objectionable, the answer would be something like, well, somebody might see you go into the movie theater, and they don't know what you're watching, and you could be a stumbling block for them. That was the, that was the old fallback when you pressed on some extra biblical edition. You could be a stumbling block. And I suspect people watch some of the same movies in the quiet of their homes with probably a lot less of a wisdom filter. Or you had this. Instead of teaching uh, the biblical principle of modesty, uh, in some of these places, women were, were, were forbidden uh, to wear anything except a, a skirt or a dress. And so women would learn the game of figuring out who's going to be around before they decided what to wear, except for the real diehards. Or how about this? Instead of being taught, you really need to prepare your heart to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, which, by the way, is why we sent out a worship guide. People were taught, you just need to make sure you really dress up. You know, put on your finest, because you're going to worship God. I, I remember uh, at a church, first church I served at vocationally, I was an outreach pastor. Um, I uh, coached uh, a base, my, my son's baseball team, my oldest son Kevin's baseball team, just to, to spend time with him and, and to connect with people in the community. In fact, a police officer who was shot on duty, we coached together. He came to Christ through our relationship. Really cool stuff. But we had a Wednesday night game one night, and uh, I, I hustled into Wednesday night service kind of late. I didn't put on the requisite uniform of a shirt and tie. I just, I guess, came in my coach's stuff. And I was chastised, you know, for not putting on uh, a tie. After all, it's Wednesday night worship. And uh, that was a little bit, I think, of legalism getting in the way of just kind of trying to love on people and serve in the community. Now, I could give you all kinds of illustrations, and maybe some of you come from backgrounds where you could give similar illustrations. One of the sad consequences is sometimes when people are in a legalistic variant of Christianity, what happens is when they figure out that some of these applications weren't nearly as biblical as they were told, end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater and leaving it all. Do you know anybody like that? Legalism 
is nothing new. The text I just read, the text I'm going to preach through, it's pretty much about legalism. And what we're going to see from this text is five problems with legalism. There are more than five problems, but we're going to look at five problems with legalism. And I, I just think a message like this is needed for a church like us who takes the Bible really seriously. We should, right? But at the same time, we don't want to be legalistic. So I'm preaching to you on the problem with legalism. You with me? All right. Well, first of all, the first problem with legalism, let me tell you up front and then show you from the text. Problem number one is this. Legalism makes the application of Scripture as authoritative as Scripture itself. Does that make sense? In other words, legalism takes, and we are to apply Scripture, right, to our everyday lives, but legalism takes every application and they almost say, thus says the Lord about that application. So the context is, it's, it's a Saturday morning. It looks like it's a beautiful Saturday morning, a great day to worship God at the synagogue, and that's where they're headed, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. In other words, they want to stave off the kind of hunger pains that maybe you're feeling right now because you didn't eat breakfast. And they grabbed themselves a pre-Wheaties breakfast of champions. They, they take some of the uh, grains of wheat left on the, corn, on the edges of the field, and they begin to, to whittle it and to eat it. Look at what the Pharisees who were watching say. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, they say it's not lawful. What specifically is the beef of the Pharisees against Jesus and his disciples for picking grain? What's their beef? Their, their, their beef is actually not picking the grain. A couple times in Leviticus, it talks about Farmers ought not to harvest the edges of their field, maybe you've read that, so that if somebody was walking by who was hungry or in need, they could, harp, they could, they could glean a little bit and, and get a snack. So the beef is not what they're doing, what's the beef? When they're doing it. They are doing this, they say, on the Sabbath. They're not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. So the question is, were they right or were they wrong? And we're going to get to that, but I want to be clear that keeping the Sabbath under the Old Covenant was super-duper important. We don't want to blow that off, right? Our kids have learned the Ten Commandments. What's the fourth commandment? Come on. Remember the Sabbath day and do what? To keep it holy. Now, let me read on the rest of the fourth commandment so we get the idea of how important this is. Verse 9, Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, he says, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So was keeping the Sabbath a big deal under the old covenant, yes or no? Yeah. And in fact, you go through the major and minor prophets, 
One of the reasons God allows Israel to be sent off into some brutal exile in Assyria, Babylon, and other places is because they started blowing off the Sabbath. What's even more, the Old Testament made it clear the Sabbath is a gift to humanity to uniquely worship God and serve those around us. A great gift from God. And no doubt, no doubt, there were many Israelites who, who, who observed the Sabbath, right, in the right way, with the right spirit. So we don't want to say, we don't want to like kind of answer this text by saying, you know what their problem was? They just took the law of God too seriously and they didn't love enough. You with me? That's not the way to, 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 to answer the tension here. It's not to say they just took the law of God too seriously and didn't love enough. That would be, that's just dumb, okay? That's an oversimplified and erroneous way of dealing with legalism. Not to mention, is it not true that the law of God is actually an extension, an expression, a reflection of the love of God? So I'm with James Montgomery Boyce when he says, hey, 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 the significance of the Old Testament day of worship, the Sabbath, ought to say something about how we prioritize the new covenant day of worship, the Lord's day. All of that said, beyond the general description of Exodus 20, which I just read, which said don't work on the seventh day, beyond that, do you know the Old Testament is actually really vague on what specifically it was prohibiting? Did you know that? Like there's only three or four explicit prohibitions about the Sabbath in the Old Testament. One of them was like you can't carry a burden uh, a certain amount of distance. Well, that vagueness was a problem for some people. We need clarity. We need to know exactly what we can do and we can't do. You gotta give us some expectations. And let me tell you, sometimes asking for clarity and, 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 and specifics and expectations is wisdom but sometimes, in any issue that you're talking about in life, when you say, just, just tell me what you mean. Give me a formula. Give me the expectations. Give me the yeses and nos. Sometimes, that actually can reveal a legalistic heart rather than trying to get to the heart of the issue. They wanted a formula that they could just plug and play. And the formula is actually what they got. Do you know that over centuries, they developed layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of non-inspired, humanly invented applications of how to walk out, for instance, the fourth commandment. And this thing became a heavy yoke of thousands of extra biblical mandates. Remember last week, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We're all going to be in a yoke, but the question is, what yoke? He was specifically talking about the yoke of their extra biblical additions to the law of God. There is something that became written over all these centuries of oral tradition called the Mishnah. You ever heard of that? The Mishnah was like, a, like an extra book they added to the Bible. They wouldn't have said it was the Bible, but it almost functioned like it. 39 massive sections of thousands of extra biblical applications of the fourth commandment they, that they begin to treat as the fourth commandment itself. Some really silly stuff. For instance, the Mishnah said, listen, on the Sabbath, don't tie a knot or loosen a knot. 
So, because that would be work. So forget about tying your shoes. You just slip them on and, and ruin the heel of your shoe. All right? Or how about this one? They would say, for instance, um, that you shouldn't, if you're a baseball player, this would be a big problem, you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath because your spit might move some dirt. We would call that a furrow, and the Mishnah prohibits plowing, and there might be the double trouble. Your spit might cause a seed to germinate, and now you're planting. Literally, that's in the Mishnah. They said you couldn't carry a jacket from one place to the next unless you were wearing it. That's carrying a burden. So if in your den and you want to take your jacket to your living room, you had to put it on, go to your, live, go to your bedroom or whatever, and then take it off. Otherwise, you'd be carrying a burden. This one, was, this one really got, I just learned this one. If your house somehow fell to the ground, was demolished because of a windstorm or something, According to their application of Sabbath law, you could dig through the rubble for bodies. But if a body was found to be dead, whether it's your child, your mother, your father, you had to leave that body until the next day after the Sabbath. What? We're just talking some crazy, crazy stuff. You could only walk 1,100 paces on the Sabbath. So if your mother is sick and she lives 1,383 paces away, mom, you're on your own. This was legalism run amok. Do you see it? And so the Pharisees, based on the Mishnah and other traditions, saw the disciples as working. After all, they were winnowing and they were harvesting as they took the sheaves of wheat. I love, D.A. Carson was so helpful on this. He said this, the fourth commandment was never about not doing anything that might resemble work, because most of what we do can resemble work in some way, right? It was never just about a unilateral saying, you can't work, period. But it was actually about refraining from the work you do on days one through six to support yourself and your family as an expression that I can trust in God to provide as I work those other six days, that I can rest in him, right? And we even see that illustrated when he said on the manna, hey, the last day, double portion, it won't rot, you won't have to collect manna on the Sabbath. Remember that? And, he, and, and, and by the way, just talking about employment, there are reasonable reasons people will work, for instance, on the Lord's Day, because sheep do fall in ditches, right? We do need law enforcement, we do need medical help, and all the rest. So we appropriately need to apply this stuff. So it's not like the fourth commandment is saying, you better not cut your grass after church. You know? And it's not like these guys were farmers trying to get a little overtime in on the Sabbath. Yet the Pharisees made their application just as authoritative as Scripture. So do you see that? So we ought to step back after this point, first point and say, hmm, is there any place that I might be making my applications, especially the farther they are, are they, they are away from the word of God, but is there any place I'm making my applications as authoritative as scripture? And I wanted one that might hit closer to home for a church like us. So here's one that I, that I thought of. Deuteronomy 6 mandates that Parents teach their kids the ways of God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's the Shema. 
you teach this to your kids when they're lying down, when they rise up, and all the rest. Is that biblical? Yes. But then some people take that verse to make the application that the only way you can accomplish that is if you, dad, or you, mom, are their 24-7 teacher. In other words, you can only accomplish this through homeschooling. Now, there may be wise reasons to homeschool, and people make their decisions, but that is taking the application of, a, of, the, of the principle, parents need to make sure their kids are taught in the Lord, to you have to be the one teaching them all the time. And you say, well, that's not a big deal to me. I can tell you in some churches, that's a big deal. You're a homeschool church. Oh, no, no, we send our kids to the public schools. We're a missionary church and all the rest. Instead of letting parents take the principle of Deuteronomy 6 and apply it as the Spirit leads them to their own lives. Does that make sense? Number two, and I'll move quicker. Legalism reduces Christianity to rules. Am I saying rules are bad? No. Every relationship actually has rules and boundaries. Think of the marriage relationship. So we're not saying legalism reduces Christianity to rules, therefore rules is bad. We're saying legalism makes it only about rules. Caveat, qualifier, only about rules. So we're not doing this religion versus relationship thing because relationships do have rules. We're not, we're not going that way. But I love what one commentator said. In biblical religion, ritual and rules can easily swamp out what is vital and real. And the end result, to use Paul's words, is a form of religion that denies its power. It's a brand of a very, it's a brand of a very subtle counterfeit Christianity. So let me show you from verse 3 how legalism reduces Christianity to rules. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus asked a question in verse 3. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Now, you... Jesus is actually being very cutting right here. You might not see it unless you know the context. He's actually being quite sarcastic. When he says to the stewards of Scripture, have you not read? He's like saying to a a chemist, hey, have you ever heard about the periodic table chart? I'm not sure which way it is, Kevin. Or it's like saying to a carpenter, hey, do you know what a level is? Of course they've read that. They are, after all, the Pharisees, the stewards of Scripture. No, he's making a point. You read it, but you don't get it. Now, he's referring to the time when David, he has now been anointed as king. He's not fully assumed the throne yet. Saul is the king. Saul's not real pleased about David that he's going to be the king. Remember that? So David's on the run. And David has some men with him. And when you're on the run, it's harder to eat, to drink, and all the rest. And so he shows up at the house of God. You can just see him panting at the door of God. Do you have something to eat and drink for my men? And Ahimelech, the priest on duty then, says, nope, we're fresh out. Oh, we do have the 12 loaves of consecrated bread of presence, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, but that's only lawful for priests to eat, according to Leviticus, which is true. After those, some, some conversation, Ahimelech actually gives those loaves to David and his men. And Jesus is asking the question, 
haven't you read about that? Because technically, technically, they were violating what Leviticus said there. Are you all with me? Now, Jesus is asking then, was David or Ahimelech ever condemned in Scripture for that act of giving the bread of presence to David and his men? Is, what's the answer to that? No, the Bible's silent about it. So you have to kind of draw your own conclusion. But what is clear is David nor Himlech are ever condemned. It's like second round to Jesus right here. And they knew that they were never, that, that, that the scriptures never condemned Himlech or David for eating the bread of presence. Here, so let, let, let me give more clarity to the second point. Legalism reduces Christianity to the flat, unthinking, mechanical application of these black and white rules. That's what it does. Now, by, by the way, here's a warning. Just because some people seize upon this legalistic air to justify violating repeated clear commands of Scripture, such as commands about the nature of marriage between one man and one woman, the nature of pastoral leadership and all that, should not keep us from searching where we have fallen prey to reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. And perhaps a non-biblical illustration will help. I have a wonderful, beautiful, 17-year-old daughter who drives better than me. She'll tell you that, and she's probably right. She wants to go out one night. This is just a hypothetical illustration. And I give her a cur curfew. Say, I want you home by a, a 11 p.m. And she strolls in all casually about 11.45 p.m. Oh, sweetheart, where you been? Eh, why? Does it matter? I wanted a slush at 7-Eleven, and uh, so I stopped there. That's not going to be a real good conversation. No call, nothing. Scenario two. She actually lets me know in some means, hey, I'm not going to be on time. Uh, a friend of mine I saw driving home is out of gas on the side of the road. I want to leave her stranded in the dark at night, so I'm going to help her. She broke my curfew. No. Do you see the point of the illustration? There was another principle at work. You see, the intent of Sabbath law was for us to, literally, it says in Isaiah 58, 13, to delight in God. This is, sometimes we don't delight in God like we should, right? The Sabbath, or the Lord's Day now, is, is to increase our love for God, to delight and love God, to love and serve others, and to enjoy rest. And by the way, let me add this. Do you know rest includes recreation? having fun, doing something to, to rest. As Jesus put it in the parallel passage, passage in Mark 2.27, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. So principle two, legalism reduces Christianity to rules. Number three, legalism makes every law or doctrine of equal and thus primary importance. The legalist says, if it's truth, it's truth, and it must be defended at all cost. Again, I quote D.A. Carson. He says, that mentality fails to see that there are a hierarchy of values in the Bible itself. This isn't situational ethics. We're not talking about that. But the reality is, some things are more important and significant than others, even in sacred writ itself. Jesus makes that point plain in verse 5 when he says... 
Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? Now here's what Jesus is doing. He is saying to be consistent with your legalistic applications of the fourth commandment, you would have to say that the priests, what they're doing is not lawful. Because priests on the Sabbath work their butts off. They preach, they teach, right? They went outside the temple complex and slaughtered an animal. They did some processing, and they brought the appropriate parts back in, and they would sacrifice it. Let me tell you, at the end of the day, they wanted to put their feet up and flip their shoes off. It was a day of hard work. But of course, these Pharisees would not say that the priests were doing what was unlawful because they well knew Scripture itself talked about the priests doing that work on the Sabbath. See, the call to temple worship clearly trumps the flat mechanical application of the fourth commandment, and specifically their twisted applications of it. Today, we have to understand some things are more important than others. That, again, that's not situational ethics, but some Christians want to make end times, your end times eschatology, that's a redundant statement, your eschatology as important as your view of the cross. Like the rapture view is as important as how you think of the cross of work, cross of Christ and redemption. Or, or some people want to make your view on music as important as your view on marriage. And that's why at Restore Church, we have closed-handed issues, issues that we cannot disagree on because they would put us outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And there's open-handed issues that we might see differently, but these are not things that make or break you as a Christian. Now, that leads to number four. And I think number four is even more important than the first three. And the fifth one will be the most important of all. Four, number four, legalism forgets about mercy and forgets about people. That's what it does. It forgets about mercy and it forgets about people. Look at verse seven. We'll come back to verse six in just a moment. Verse seven, Jesus says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, namely the disciples plucking grains of, of, of wheat. Now, in verse seven, is Jesus saying, you know what? This whole sacrificial system thing is not good. This whole sacrificial system that pointed to me, it's bad. Throw it out and just be kind to one another. No, Jesus is not saying that, is he? He upheld the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to which every other lamb pointed towards. What he is warning us is, is this. He's warning us about the practice of ritual without the pursuit of mercy. He's quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. That's why that quote is in parentheses. And Hosea was talking about there was a time in Israel's life when they were doing all the right sacrifices as they were treating other people all the wrong way. It's like he's saying, even if you bring 100,000 unblemished bulls to sacrifice, and yet, hey, you walk over other people. God is not pleased with your worship. That is unbiblical worship. So this is the person, who, by the way, who checks 
all the boxes. They have their devotions, they pray, they might even go out to an abortion clinic, they might, they might do all that stuff. But who, just frankly, is not loving and kind and merciful person, as God is, and God calls that person to be. That's what you would call the church curmudgeon. I remember at, a, at one of the churches I served at, I mentioned by way of introduction, where, again, I was the outreach pastor, and I was looking for ways to us to bless and connect with the community, and I came across a rescue mission in, in South Bend, Indiana. Um, and the rescue mission had this, this program where various churches could adopt a night once a month, once every few months, uh, as a church, bring a meal in, uh, as a church, um, just build relationships and hold a gospel service, preach the gospel, sing, and all, and all that, and pray for folks. And I remember the lead pastor saying to me, well, you know, you can't do that because some nights the Catholics take and another nights these crazy charismatics take. And, and I do think Catholicism preaches another gospel. There are Catholics who are Christians, not because of Catholic truth, but in spite of it. And I do believe that there is some crazy charismania. But I'm like, what do they have to do with our night we're there? Right? In fact, wouldn't that be all the reason more for us to bring the pure, unadulterated gospel? And that is an example where legalism, the doctrine of separation, got in the way of loving people and demonstrating mercy. Now, this is such a powerful point that the passage ends with this. Verse 9, Jesus and his crew, after this little interaction, get to the worship service. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, the Pharisees did, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, just, just slow down for a second on this one. The Pharisees, they don't see that man with a withered hand as a man who needs mercy, do they? Now, he's nothing but a pawn for their evil intent of saying no to Jesus. Thus, verse 10, is it lawful, Jesus? We got you now, so that they might accuse him, it says, right? And I love what Jesus does here. In the previous points, as I showed you, he appealed to the right use of Scripture, but sometimes you just appeal to the right use of experience. There's a place for that. And he does that. He says to them, now, okay, all right. Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And the answer is, well, we would all do that, right? That sheep's in a pit, whether it's uh, life is in jeopardy or not, we're going to get it out of the pit whatever day it's on. Now listen to these next words. We, need to, we live in a time when whales mean more to people than babies and dogs more than dudes. Listen to these next words. Of how much more value is a man, a human, than a sheep? So, he says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which is one of the points of it all. Legalism lets mercy and people slip to the background behind a facade, a fake, false, look at me, piety, which is a heap of manure. So then verse 13, the miracle goes down right in front of them. Then he says to the man, see Jesus, when he does a miracle, he just gotta say it and it happens, right? That's Jesus' power. He says to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the others. Right in front of their eyes, this miracle goes down. 
Do they say, oh man, we've had this thing all wrong. We're so sorry, Jesus. Do they repent of their legalism? No. They are guilty of the fifth and final and the most problematic issue with legalism. Fifth of all, legalism obscures the Lord. This is the most important one of all. We're gonna see this a few places as we just quickly take another look at the text. When I say obscure, by the way, I mean conceals. Like, like clouds conceal the sun, right? I mean, obviously, to a different extent. Some days, you just kind of have thin, hazy clouds, and they just kind of, you know, make the sun a little, sun a little vague. Like, you know, it, you can still see it, but not clearly. And we saw last week, sometimes clouds are so dark, you can't even see the sun. I mean, it makes it seem like at three in the afternoon, it's, it's dead midnight. That's how dark it is. So there are various levels of obscuration, but that's what it does. So remember verse five, the point that Jesus made, temple worship trumps Sabbath law, right? That's why when the priests do their thing in the Sabbath, uh, in the temple on the Sabbath, they're, they're not doing anything guilty. They're doing what they're supposed to do, which is why priests can work. Now, the temple in the Old Testament represented what? Represented what? Come on, talk back to me. We're going we're to wrap this up. Stay with me. The, God's presence. Thank you, Tom. Jesus, in reality, is God's presence. Read verse 6 with that understanding. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What or who is he referring to? Himself. Himself. There it is right there. And by the way, this is not the first time Jesus will connect the temple with himself. Remember in John chapter 2, the Pharisees are, are stiff-arming him, talking about the temple and all this, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, raise it up, and the scripture lets us know he was talking about his body, the meeting place of God. Sadly, their legalism won't let them see that Jesus is the very presence and promise and provision of God prophesied all through the Old Testament if you would just open your eyes. But legalism won't let them do that. Go to verse eight. Verse eight, he says, for the son of man. Let me stop there, for the son of man. That, that's quite an assertion in itself. The son of man is an expression going back to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel has a vision. There's the ancient of days, that's God the Father. And there comes to him the visage of one called the Son of Man. And there's given to the Son of Man a kingdom who's, who, that is everlasting, whose dominion shall never end. In other words, it's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Messiah. It, it, that's the very title when Pastor Charles a few months ago preached from Matthew chapter 9. Remember the man who's dropped down through the roof on a pallet? And he, and, he, and he tells the man that his sins are forgiven. And they're like, you can't forgive sins. And he says, that you might know that the son of man, there he's calling himself the son of man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, man, pick up your pelt and go home. And he does. So he's asserting his deity when he says the son of man. But he moves on. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying there? I'm the boss of the Sabbath? I'm the creator of the Sabbath. 
I'm the king of the Sabbath. I'm the God of the Decalogue. That's me. I am the great I am, standing in front of you, Yahweh, the living God incarnate. But their legalism won't let them see it. It obscures the Lord. He will, and John, he will stand up at the tabernacle feast of lights with all those lights, all those candles, and he will say, I am the light of the world. Their legalism won't let them receive it. In that same event, he sees the water being ceremonially poured out in a pitcher into a basin. He says, I am the water of life. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst. They cannot stand it because of the legalism. And here he says to them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and they will not have it. So what's more, they will witness the healing of a man. How many times do you think they saw in their life thus far a man with a withered withered hand instantaneously healed just like that? How many times do you think? I'm guessing goose egg. How many times afterwards did they heal a man, see a man healed of a withered hand? Goose egg. And yet that bonafide, we ain't talking a Benny Hinn miracle, bonafide miracle right in front of their eyes does not cause them to reevaluate their position on Jesus. Legalism blinds us to the truth of Jesus. So verse 14, they conspire to kill him. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. But of course, we know this as Christians, that will only accomplish the plan of God to achieve ultimate restoration, the rescue and redemption of sinners at the cost of the cross and the truth of his bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, sadly, their legalism kept them from salvation. Is legalism keeping you from salvation? Do you think that if you join a church, that will save you? That's legalism, thinking you can earn by what you do. Do you think your baptism, do you think there's something you can do? The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that required the Son of Man to die for you and rise again. You must abandon your self-righteousness and trust in the righteousness of Christ. Now, as believers, I think we often have a lot of low-grade legalism in our hearts. You know that? And I believe while that does not take away our salvation, it cuts us off from the vibrant life of Christ in sanctification. And I'm ending here. I told you to turn to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, Paul is writing a church that was starting to dabble into legalism. You better do this if you want to be right with God. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but what? The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on and on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. These indeed, listen, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is saying, you cannot earn anything with God. It is given by faith in Christ because of grace alone. 
So if you've been raised with Christ, he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. I don't know where a message like this has landed, but I know legalism deceives people into thinking they can earn God's favor. And that is an absolute affront to him, by the way, because that devalues the work of Jesus and it actually is like you snapping your suspenders. Look at me, God. No, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you need to turn to Jesus Christ and him alone, I would encourage you to do that in your heart right now. I'll call upon him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And guess what? This is a God who's merciful to every sinner who comes to him like that. And if you're a believer, you'd say, man, I've let some things creep in. We're not talking about lacking discipline or discipleship, right? Or walking in obedience. That's all biblical. That's all biblical. We're talking about this idea. Look at me. I'm performing this. And sometimes our legalistic bent comes out. When life smacks us in the face and we think, God, I've been serving you and you let this happen to me. I've I've felt that way before. But that's actually a form of legalism. Thinking, if I do this, then God ought to give me product A and not product B. But God's not a vending machine, right? He's not a vending machine. So may the Spirit work in our hearts and massage the truth of Christ and Christ alone for the non-believer and believer alike. Father, please Lift up your son. We know that if righteousness came through the law, Christ died in vain, Galatians 2. But we thank you not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God, have your way as we sing now. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.